We are the Satellite Sisters. Welcome to the show. I'm Liz Dolan here in uh, West Hollywood, California, in the Wondery Studio, with my sister Leanne Dolan. Leanne, I see you've you've removed all the, the you know the massive eyelashes you had on for your big dance <laughs> performance this weekend. But I feel like the glow is still there, Liz. Yes, okay. isn't it? The glow is still there for my <laughs> Broadway performance. I'm gonna tell you all about it later. More on that coming. Julie Dolan, you're in Dallas, Texas, but uh, you were in New York over the weekend, right? We're gonna hear I some was, tales. But of I that. have to tell you how excited I am because we, Satellite Sisters is on Baby Watch. Okay, <laughs> we are on Baby Watch. Shortly before we started recording the show. We got a Facebook post from longtime listener, you know, Jennifer Glazer Skinner, who, who, if you follow us in our Facebook group, Satellite Sisters Facebook group, you know, you, we, she is pregnant and she is about to have that baby. You know, she went through induction that what things were not happening with induction. So 17 minutes ago, we got the word she's going for an epidural. Okay. <laughs> so things are going to happen. All right. So who knows? And I am monitoring uh, my phone, even though I'm not supposed to be doing that in the middle of recording a podcast, just in case we get some baby news live on this Satellite Sisters podcast. Yeah. I feel like they might Facebook live it. I think it could come to that. <laughs> <laughs> and many of you met Jennifer at our event in Santa Monica last spring. She was here. So, you know, she's very, I believe the Minnesota Satellite Sisters even sent her baby gifts yes. already. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, okay. Are, yeah. All right. No, she's she on is it. one of us and she is giving birth to the, uh, to the next generation of Satellite <laughs> Sister listeners. Right And now. that's the kind of fan we want. Okay. <laughs> so if you're not pregnant, you better get pregnant and get to work. We need more listeners, right? It's one way to do it. Uh, okay. Speaking of Santa Monica events, I wanted to give people the exciting update about our event coming up this Sunday, March 18th at 2 p.m. We're back at the Santa Monica, Santa Monica Public Library, Lee and you and I. Yes. And it is, we were invited by the city of Santa Monica as part of their Women's History Month celebration to do a session. So we are doing a session that is entitled, guess what? Stay noisy, sort of how to make change in the era of, uh, of Me Too and Time's Up and, of course, just generally staying noisy, which we're for. So we have announced in the past all the details. It's posted on the Facebook page if you go to events. But what we haven't announced yet, which I'm about to do, who our guests are going to be. I'm excited because so I don't actually I, I know. No I, I work on the show. I don't have no <laughs> idea. Go ahead. Well, we wanted to talk. We had said we wanted to talk to women about their careers in sports uh, and entertainment. And, um, you know, and of course, and Leanne as a creative artist yourself. So our first guest will be Sarah Fisher. She is head of production at Shondaland. So you guys know I visited her on the sets of Scandal and Grey's Anatomy and How to Get Away with Murder a couple months ago. I talked all about it on the show. As head of production, she has a really hard, complicated job. Mm -hmm. And she actually came out of the sports world. She was at CBS Sports originally. So Sarah Fisher is going to join us. Also joining us is Leanne Daly. She is currently the U.S. chairman of a company called The Talent Business. So that's a big global recruiting organization. Oh. But I know her because for years she was uh, at ESPN. So she was a senior executive at ESPN running marketing there. And then she went on to do the same at Thomson Reuters. Oh. So, you know, they've both had really Really interesting careers. I was with Leanne one night last week, and she told me a very funny story about at one point in a meeting, you know, being the only woman in the room trying to get attention, she actually took her shoe off and pounded it on the table. So, oh, you know, very, sort of very Khrushchev. Very like. Nikita <laughs> Khrushchev, exactly. So, we're going to have an hour at the library, and then we will repair next door to Esther's wine shop for a little after party. But all the information is there on the. Uh, on the Facebook page. And we would really love you to turn up, bring your next gen, you know, young men and young women. We want a, a lively Satellite Sisters conversation about about staying noisy. So we're psyched, right, Leanne? Oh, fantastic, Liz. Well, I'm just hearing the, the confirmed <laughs> guests for the first time, and I'll be moderating the panel discussion because you're essentially acting like a panelist. Yes, I'm going to That's play the, the role plan. of a panelist. And I'm the moderator. Yes. 
Yes. Because my career is just less than all of yours. Clearly. No, no we're I'm really kidding. focusing on sort of the business aspect. <laughs> yeah, I, and, we, yeah, I know. Yes. <laughs> Don't worry, Liz. Don't worry. Okay. I'm, I'm happy to be the moderator. That sounds like a good panel. Yeah. Yeah. And these are very outspoken women. So I think it will be lively and fun. Oh, so good. You're going I, to enjoy I, won't it. Even, I can ask one question and then just hit play <laughs> and you guys can answer. Okay. Sounds great. All right. I know t- they're going to be noisy. They're probably going to interrupt each other. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> That's what we love. All right. Today on the show, it's our Satellite Sisters Radio Book Club. Oh, it's not radio. It's just our Satellite (laughs) Sisters Book Club. You can close your eyes and pretend it's the radio. Satellite Sisters Book Club. We are excited to talk to Caroline Frazier. She's the author of Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder. Hats off to those of you in the Satellite Sisterhood that read the book. I know we have a lot of Satellite Sisters fans. We're going to try to get to a ton of questions. For those of you who didn't, I think you can still tune in. Yes. If you want to learn about the real Laura behind the fictional Laura, uh, we're going to talk about that because I I was shocked. I mean, there's some shocking information in there the is. book. Yes. Yeah. I agree, Leanne. Yeah. I mean, it just blows things out of the water, what, you, what you thought. <laughs> it yeah. does. It does. So looking forward to talking to her. Plus, in case you're thinking about, really, what are you going to make of your life? What are you going to be when you grow up? I was shocked that she didn't write those books until her 60s. Yes. Yeah. I, that, I had no idea. Yeah. I, I knew nothing. Right. So and very she lived to be 90. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> I know. You've got to do something, right? Yeah. I mean, whoo. Just can't sit around. (laughs) Got to stay busy somehow. All right. Also, Julie, you were in New York for like a week with with many of your grandchildren having many adventures. You're going to tell us about a couple of those. Right. Uh, I had a double header in New York. So, yes, I have a full report coming up. I, of course, had my big dance show this weekend. Of course. Liz, you were there. Fossey, Fossey, Fossey. And so I can report in on my Broadway debut. And (laughs) And uh, Sheila came too. Sheila and I were both in the audience enjoying it very much. Yeah. Julie, you know, you'll appreciate Sheila like bolted so fast after it was over. She almost (laughs) didn't even come to say hello. She was, she was sick. She's always on her own schedule. She is always. She just, she she shows up and then she disappears. You know, there she goes. That's exactly what happened. That's good. But we all want to know just exactly how heavy were those things that you had on your eyes. They were ballroom lashes. That's all I need to say to you. And then finally, we're going to get, it's the Oscars this weekend. I mean, who knew? We're just recovering from the. Olympics. And I mean, we're still basking in the glow of the curling gold medal. And uh, so and the skating pandas. Leanne, you did such an outstanding job. We have to give you we have to give you kudos on your own show about just how great I look forward to reading your random notes every day. They were really great. It was fun to do. It was chewing up a lot of time. I have to say, like yesterday when I had no Olympics to watch all day or notes to take, I was like, huh. What did I do? It's, what am I going to do? It's, all it day? was. It's like January second uh, this week with like you <laughs> know is. just there's it nothing. Is. You just don't want to do anything. Right. It's so depressing when it's all over. Well, we have but, the Oscars. That's what Liz is going to tell us. Which yeah, she, some movies she may or may there's not just go one, see. There's a movie I haven't seen yet that I need. I don't know. You, you guys need are going to tell me if I should bother. Need okay. a ruling. Okay. All right, but Jill, right. you were in New York. What what happened? I was banana? in New York. I had an assignment. I was. Uh, I went to Brooklyn um, first for uh, Joseph. She is my three-year-old granddaughter, and I am Urban Nana. And from time to time, I get a call, or, or some. Usually, it's a text. It's a text, and it will just—it won't have any information. It just says, uh, "Can you come the twentieth through the twenty-third?" And I just have to buzz in. Yes, I don't ask any follow-up <laughs> questions. I, I, I don't. I don't know who's going to be home when I'm there. I other than Josephine. So I just go. I go on assignments. I have my bag. She had a week off from school. Her parents had a number of evening activities. So I really was. I was needed. So, um, and you know, as Urban Nana, you know, I realize now being a grandmother for some time that. You know, they're all kinds of grandmothers and they're all great and they all do wonderful things. Um, but you do have to do, Liz, to use a little of your parlance, a little market segmentation. <laughs> now, I realize that I am never going to be baking Nana. You know, I mean, I can make a chocolate chip cookies, but if you're really looking for a grandmother to like make all these wonderful memories about pie baking together, that that is not me, right? Mm-hmm. No. Uh, uh, Josephine's other grandmother is loves to shoe shop. She just she loves to shoe shop. So she is kind of the shoe grandmother. Like I have never bought Josephine a pair of shoes because 
the other grandmother has that handled, you know, oh, and she's okay. doing a very fine job. And Josephine has a lot of cute shoes, always has cute <laughs> shoes. So, uh, okay. So that's good. Don't need to do the that. Urban Nana, I feel like I am adventure grandmother. I am like always up to take Josephine somewhere new, do something. We like to go to the park. We like to get out and about. I don't like to go to children's museums. I've already talked about that yes. on this podcast. They're cold, they're wet, they're germy, they're dark and they're noisy. Okay. <laughs> but I like to go to a lot of places. So this week, we, we went on a number of adventures, and one of the things that we were really excited about is that in her neighborhood, I was I just couldn't even believe it, they have a feminist bookstore coffee shop that opened up. Nice. And um, I believe as Urban Nana that you are never too young to be a feminist. Don't you agree, uh, sisters? Exactly. Yep. Agreed, yeah. So, so we were, we were psyched to do this. Now the weather was terrible in New York last week. So we had to do some bundling up. It was cold and drizzly, but we didn't care. We, we headed out for the um, feminist bookstore coffee shop, but given that it's in New York, specifically Brooklyn, you know, things are not big there. So this was not like Barnes and Noble that I was going in. So (laughs) it really, the feminist uh, bookstore coffee shop was actually it was like walking into someone's like walk-in closet, you know, <laughs> like you would have in, like we walked into the feminist bookstore co- uh, coffee shop and we were immediately felt incredibly awkward. I, I don't know how to say this because we were like literally in someone's living space. This was not. <laughs> oh, I really? Mean, That's awkward. There were, That's there awkward. There weren't really bookshelves mm. or anything like that they, because that would have taken up too much room. <laughs> there were some like books uh, somehow like propped uh, against the walls. Okay, that was good. And there were, um, there. I would say books for all ages. I was very happy to see that there were, you know, a couple books, there are children's books in there as well. So that was, that was exciting, but there really wasn't, it, when they said it was a coffee shop, there weren't really like tables or anything. There were two of those, you know what I'm talking about, those pier one fan rattan chairs. Oh yeah. Yes. Wow. Do they yeah, still make are- those? Where did they <laughs> dig those up? It sounds very know. Portlandia. But I those are feminists. I get those are feminists, but they're pretty rickety, and they're not really that great for three-year-olds. Because I just thought I could see if Jen- if Josephine was going to try to climb into one of the big fan chairs, things were going to happen with the books that were like on the floor and propped up against the wall. Things were going to happen. So. So we decided that we would go with um, the coffee shop part of the store. Now that entailed there was just there was one guy in, and he wasn't it wasn't a counter or anything. Again, there are no tables in this coffee shop. Mm. You're like in someone's walk-in closet with books on the floor, the rattan chairs, and there is a guy behind a very small table, and he doesn't really have. I, I it was. It was not a Keurig system he had. For, <laughs> like a single cup Melita? Yeah. <laughs> it was, but it was a very like limited, it wasn't Keurig, but his espresso operation was really small, really small. And, a, and a, again, it's awkward. We're just standing there. We're afraid to like touch anything again, because we're in his closet and, um, but uh, I had promised Josephine, like, if we go to this feminist bookstore coffee shop, that she could have a hot chocolate. So I asked, I asked oh. the guys, like, hi, um, do you have any hot chocolate? And he reaches down between his knees and he p- pulls up, he pulls up a bottle of um, <laughs> chocolate, chocolate milk, chocolate sauce. Um, but he said, hey, well, my chocolate sauce is. Um, it's a uh, clogged, so I can't get any chocolate sauce out. So now, wow, that is a barrier, a business barrier, cloggy sauce. Yeah. yeah so he then he he showed me the bottle. And yeah, it was definitely some kind of chocolate sauce. But then he put that down between his knees because, of course, there wasn't. There's not really a counter, mm-hmm. and his tabletop was kind of small for his coffee operation there. And if he put the chocolate sauce on it that that wouldn't have worked. So so then we're stuck. So now we're in the coffee shop. We can't sit uh we can't sit down. We really we we can't get the hot chocolate. Um so <laughs> we have to then just 
back out of like the walk-in, <laughs> walk-in closet. Yeah. You tried. You know. It's it, well. It must have been disappointing. You made if you're bundling up and getting there. How long were you there? Like two minutes. <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> that, like that's what's so like disappointing. Five hours, Liz. You know, it was just so awkward to be in someone's closet. You know, I mean, they they feel very. I mean. The feminist part of it, they got that. That was like, check, okay? All of the books in there, I could tell just from glancing at the titles, okay, that, you know, strong sense of feminism. But they just need to work a little more on the bookstore part of it (laughs) and on the coffee shop part of it. So. So it's not we we cannot expect to see a dramatic expansion of this as a chain anytime soon, you're thinking? We should not be waiting for this well, in I our mean, own towns. Well, I would say, you know, again, it's cur- it's a curated collection of books <laughs> yeah. that they have there. Um, it's very artisanal because everything is handcrafted in there, you know, okay. except for the Pier 1 fan chairs. Um, but they're handcrafted somewhere, I guess. Um, and it may catch on. It's small batch. I would say it's a small batch <laughs> feminist bookstore coffee shop. Uh, okay. Well, I know you have another Urban Anna story we're yes. going to get to later in the show, but I'm just going to interject a little uh, dog story here because okay. I, <laughs> you can yes. because I can. And I announced on last week's show that I had a new dog that I had adopted from a rescue that he's sort of what I'm calling a sketchy Scotty. You guys haven't seen him yet, but he has a Scotty head and who knows what kind of. It almost looks like a Scotty head on a corgi body, mm-hmm. if you can imagine that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and that at the rescue organization, they had named him Hoover, which I thought was an okay name. But then once I met him, it just seemed too serious because he's got a super fun personality. So I changed his name to Hooper which is just much more fun for me to say. And he seems to really enjoy listening to that. So uh, so today I wanted to give you what I'm just going to call the Hooper Scoop, just like what's <laughs> the, I told you there were some training things that I had to work on with Hooper or with myself. So I've had some, some I've had some success, some mixed reviews and uh, and a big fail. The success is the trips to the dog park because my previous dog, I could never take to the dog park because Ferris was the kindest, gentlest dog in the whole world who got on with every creature on planet Earth, except if you were a pug, and then he would attempt to tear your head off. So I could never take him to a dog park because it was just not relaxing for me at all. I was constantly scanning, 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 scanning to make sure that no pugs walked in. Pooper gets on with everyone. So that That's was nice. That was a That's big success. That's very nice, Liz. And it was the good test of how is he in the in the car. Definitely an A plus oh, in the car. Great. Just sits quietly in the back. So success on that. Mixed reviews on the separation anxiety. Both his oh. and mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so he just he you know, he barks a lot when I first leave. But then when you actually when you're gone you don't really know how much they're barking, so you can A, not think about it, or B, spend the whole time worrying about it. Yeah. So I'm more in the B category. So I don't know if he's barking the whole time I'm gone. Usually when I come back, he's You mean not... your neighbor downstairs hasn't told you yet uh, that, how much Okay, he's... that is my early warning system, yeah. Julie, because I figure oh. if, if he was doing that, I she would, would hear about it. Yeah. So when I attempted to leave today... Uh, he was just sort of free-ranging in the apartment. I was going to try that out instead of just putting him in the back the way I had before, and he immediately started barking. So I went back in. I put him in my bedroom. Um, he seems to be happy in there. So mixed reviews on the separation anxiety. And the last thing, the total fail would be the retraining of me to pick my clothes up off the floor. Oh. Because sometimes, I, you know, I, I, I'm just in the habit of throwing everything on the floor. <laughs> then, it's nice. But yesterday, if our mother weren't dead, you would have killed her. <laughs> you, just, you just, yeah, because you had to pick up your clothes your entire life. I know. Dead. That's why. It's, that yes. is why. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah. But last night we came in from a walk and I took off a sweatshirt and I just threw it on the floor and he immediately just cuddled himself right into my like warm sweatshirt. Yeah. So I just let him sit there in my sweatshirt, which I know is exactly the opposite of what I should be doing and what he should be doing. And yet he was enjoying himself so much. So I don't think I'm going to be very good at like 
drawing the line. The training thing is really so that that was a total fail. But uh, there will be more on the Hooper Scoop in general. A happy dog, and I think we will have a happy life together. Oh, and it's that's super nice, Liz. super that's exciting good to hear. for me. Yes, yeah. very exciting. It is nice to have someone to talk to all day, isn't it? <laughs> it is. You're probably talking to yourself there for a year. And <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah. now you have someone to talk to. I uh-huh. like it. Yeah. I like it. All right. We're the Satellite Sisters. All right. We're back. Uh, and speaking of muscle soreness. <laughs> <laughs> are you a little sore? How are your jazz hands, Leah? Oh, How they are... feel great. Well, I had my big dance debut. Dance showcase is what we like to call it in the business, Julie. That's what we call it. Dance showcase. So, And I was secretly training with my dance teacher to do not one dance this year, but three dances. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was taking extra secret private lessons. So I know I told everyone about All That Jazz, yes. our group number, inspired mm-hmm. by Bob Fosse. So we did that. But then, Julie, I was also – I signed up for the Christmas special package of private <laughs> okay, dance lessons. Leon. Okay. And well, I, you are competitive. So there's no <laughs> way you want to leave anything – you know, just – you don't want to just be in the course line. You, you know what? I felt – well, there's that. But also remember my theme for the year was proceed with curiosity. Yeah, curiosity. Uh So when our dance teacher said, hey, listen, I'd love to get more Broadway numbers in the showcase in February. Here's a special for those of you who have never done private lessons with me. It's an opportunity. I was ready for the challenge. I wanted to proceed with curiosity. Uh So I signed up, Julie, and I also performed uh, a funky-fied version of Ease on down the road. (laughs) As a ball. By yourself? No, with the dance teacher. With the dance teacher, Piero, a funkified version that was technically a ballroom hustle. So, <laughs> so I mean, Julie, this is Dancing with the Stars, but Leon, <laughs> it really is. It was, it was awesome. <laughs> it was. So the, the all that jazz opened the show, and there we all were in our big ballroom makeup. You know, we, had, we, we were inspired by Fosse, so we were in sheer black clothing. Yes. And it was dramatic, wasn't yes, it? Yes, can I just say, it was at the Pasadena Playhouse. Yeah. So it was at a legit theater. Yeah. Not in the main theater. It was upstairs in the little theater, but you really felt like you were at a show. There were lights. Lighting? Yes, 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 the whole thing. Yeah. So we came out, we opened the show, but then my ballroom hustle number with Piero ended the first act. And Liz, I got to say, it was a crowd pleaser, wasn't it? It was. I mean, he obviously picked that number to end the first half of the show because he knew he needed to end with just a giant hit. People, People were laughing and cheering and really, really enjoyed that. Here's the thing, Julie. So we start, when I go to the first lesson, I think we're just going to sort of, I, I'd watched the, the Wiz. I'd seen the original Broadway production. So uh-huh. when he suggested Ease On Down the Road, I was in. Because, you know, for my 15th birthday, I went and saw Stephanie Mills in that. So a lot of sentimental value. Plus, it's a super fun song, Ease On Down the Road. Yes. And it kind of fits my style. I could do kind of funky stuff. I can't really do anything balletic. He was not suggesting I waltz or, <laughs> Tango. You know, yeah. No, I wasn't going to do any of that. But it sounded fun. So I show up at the first lesson and I think we're just going to ease on down the road. We're just yeah. going to do some moves next to each other. <laughs> and right away he like takes my hands. I'm like, what is happening? He's like, well, ballroom hustle. So he actually taught me some ballroom dancing, Joel. What do you think of that? That's, well, I mean, I'm sorry I missed the show. I'm but... sorry you missed it too. <laughs> Once in a lifetime. <laughs> it was. <laughs> yeah. Here's the thing. I don't think I'm very good at ballroom because it involves like keeping your knees straight and I don't really, my knees don't really do that anymore and stuff, but I had fun with it. You so, looked good. Take oh, that home, actually, and I told you. <laughs> and he's a great leader. It looks like he can really yes like, keep you in line. Yes, I mean, and he's he was talking like he was talking like okay, you know, you couldn't see that, but he was sort of reminding me what to do. But Julie, we were in full costume. So after I got out of the sheer black, I just put my dignity aside, <laughs> and we played characters. We played sort of. Um, Oz Misfits. That was our role. So he was in a lot of wacky green clothing, and I had a bright purple dress on and green tights. Mm-hmm. And then we lost all shred of dignity when we put propeller hats on our heads <laughs> and did the number. Okay. Okay. And I, the I silver converse. That's coming, Leanne. I still can't visualize that, <laughs> but I, I think that you could do funky. So uh, I'm sure you were good at it. Yes. And I didn't have ruby slippers on. I did have shiny pink high top cons yeah. on. So that looked good. Converse okay. sneakers. So, and then at the end, you we did have quite an extensive dance wardrobe, Leanne. I can see that. I know. Or- I can see. He's really into the costumes. I mean, he changes for every dancer. And there were 15 dances. He changed 
changed costumes between every dance because he dances. Yeah, with Julie, a lot of he us. partners every single every, one of the of people the old in ladies. the show. <laughs> it's they did. Uh, there was a Viennese waltz. There was a foxtrot, and every time Pierrot comes out in a different whole shtick. Yeah. Costume, yeah. props. He's got, he's, got, he's got the ladies there. He's got this down. Okay, good. He does. It was so much fun. We really had a ton of fun. And then it, it wrapped up. We did a very simple dance to There's No Business Like Show Business. So it was sort of marching and kick-stepping, which was fine, but in precision lines. So that took a while to learn because one of, you know, one of our line leaders, she had danced with Martha Graham. But she oh. had actually danced with Martha Graham. <laughs> she was like in her mid-70s. Well, isn't that the opposite of a precision line dancing, Martha Graham? <laughs> so, yes. so it took her a while. I'm saying it took her a while. But we finally, we we nailed that last number. So it was so much fun. Everybody had a great time in the back. I assume people had a fun time. It was really fun. At the intermission, Julie, because Leanne had just done the big ease on down the road. First thing she says to us is like, okay, you can leave now. You guys don't have to stick around for the second half. And it was Leanne's husband. Sheila, our good friend Corny Cole, yeah. who is, by the way, great to have in any audience because she's got the whistle. Could you she hear does. Her? I could hear her hooting and howling. Yes. Yeah, we really yes. made a difference. Yes. For and everybody. She was very generous with her hooting yes. and howling. Well, we enjoyed everybody. Okay. It was good. <laughs> but, but Leanne's like, okay, you guys don't have to stick around for the second half. <laughs> so we didn't. Actually, we enjoyed the whole first half of the show. Sheila was gone before Leanne even finished that sentence. <laughs> But Corny and Leanne's husband and I, we just went around the corner for a pizza while Leanne finished the second half. Yeah. I but mean, it was so fun. Yeah. And here's the thing. Like, are we great dancers? No. Like, uh, yeah, I'm not. That's why people post the video. There's some privacy issues, but also like you're not going to see the video and go, oh, my gosh. <laughs> hold the presses. Broadway's going to call. I mean. Baby Newer, the watch out. I know. That's not going to happen. <laughs> But the idea that we were up there and kind of challenging ourselves and everybody in the back before the first number was like, I am really nervous. Like you do get surprisingly yes, nervous, it's like you know, big performance. Yes. No, you challenge yourself. Yes. That's great. So it's sort of the definition. Fun. It's the definition of outside your comfort zone. Yes. You know, right. When you get to be like a grown up. Right. This is exactly what you don't do anymore. Right. But it's you don't but, wear propeller hats. <laughs> no. But right. it also is that weird thing where it takes you back to the things you love to, to do. Yeah. I brought in a couple of new dancers, Natalie, who's been a longtime listener to Satellite Sisters, and my friend Candy. They got on board with this, and they were kind of ringers. They mm-hmm. showed up, and they could really dance and act and stuff. I had no idea. I thought they just were sort of interested in Broadway. And it just – we all said it's like this is what we love to do in high school. I didn't know Natalie was a – she was an acting major in college. She was actually wow. very good. And, uh, and But it just takes you back to like, why did we stop doing this just because we were 18? And you're like, oh, because there aren't really that many opportunities for middle-aged women to do full production numbers, you know? <laughs> but it's the same reason why people play like old man basketball. Yeah. Or, you know, they're still in flag football leagues. It's You love doing you it. You can still so, do it. You can still do it. You can still do it, Leanne. Yeah. You look great. So I'll put some I'll put some uh, still shots up on the Facebook group page. Yes, I have. Yeah, I'll put some stills up. There's one. <laughs> there's one shot of Ezon down the road. Oh, it's goofy. Makes me laugh when I see it. I mean, that costume. Okay, was that's crazy. good, Lee. And you feel you good go. about what you did. Great. I feel good about what I did, Julie, and that's what's important. Thank you, Julie. Okay. Well, I'm going to book in early for the Christmas show. Okay. So <laughs> I'll come to I'll come to see you at Christmas and come to the show. That'll be a nice holiday. <laughs> it would be. Well, so, speaking of Broadway, I mean, I I did the I went to the other the real Broadway land and Liz, you know, this is as part of my Urban Nana double header. Um, you know, I, as I said, I am the experience Nana. That's what I so I realize you get to a point, you know, with your grandchildren that you know maybe they don't need another toy or another book, but maybe it's good for them to have some experience that they wouldn't otherwise have, and that that's a great gift. So for Alice, uh, my oldest granddaughter was turning 11 uh, in the month of February. And so I, so I had asked her parents and it all worked out. I said, could we take Alice to New York to see a Broadway play, a Broadway musical? You know, because I just, I just feel very strongly. I mean, I don't know whether it's theater or symphony or ballet or opera. You can pick your performing arts. 
But I think there is something so important about seeing something live, like mm-hmm. live theater, to hear, you know, the spoken word, to hear people sing, to hear a real orchestra play that I, I think it's maybe even more important for this generation growing up because they have everything's on a screen, you know, or you know, to to be there to see someone like you dancing, Leanne. So this took a long time and a lot of effort, but we got it organized and we went to, we took Alice, uh, my husband and I took Alice to see The Lion King. Oh, how uh, great. Just, I just went for the classic. Now, I mean, it's won, it won six Tony Awards. You know, it became one of the most successful, you know, musicals in Broadway history. It's been on Broadway now since 2006. We went on Saturday night. It was packed. So it's oh. still packed. It's not like it's not like it's playing to an empty house. It has toured worldwide. And somehow I think with all of our travels overseas, I kind of miss the cultural phenomenon that is The Lion King. I had never seen the movie and I had never seen the play. But oh. I knew I had read about it and I knew that it had you know, you know, fantastic stagecraft and costumes and the the music, the scores by Elton John and the lyrics are by Tim Rice, you know, just amazing things. So I was very excited. And, you know, interestingly, as a side prep, Josephine this week was allowed to watch the movie The Lion King at home. So I've seen the beginning of it three times. But <laughs> Josephine doesn't understand resume play, so I always see the same 45 minutes. So when I got to the theater with Alice on Saturday night, I was really excited to see what happened in the at the end of Lion King. Yeah. I didn't know. But we had uh, just, she loved it. Uh, I mean, it made me cry. I think that the opening scene, the circle of life, yeah. when the actors and the giant puppets come down the, come down the aisles, uh, or at the beginning of the second act when they do one by one, I think that's some of the best theater I've ever, musical theater I've ever seen. It was it, pretty, it was revolutionary, right? Yeah. When it, it you know, 12 years ago. Yeah, changed, yeah. sort of changed theater. Yeah. And now it's a whole new generation of people just uh, just singing and dancing their hearts out. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, it's so excellent. And I posted a picture of Alice and I um, on Broadway, look, you know, and so many people wrote about their own childhood memories about Nan wrote about seeing Funny Girl or Anne said that she saw Mary Martin in Hello, Dolly. A lot of people saw Hello, Dolly. Jean saw it with Carol uh, Channing. Uh, and Jules Jeez. saw it with, and Andrea saw Pearl Bailey as Hello. <laughs> wow, wow, that's quite a lineup. Well, though. I think the first musical I ever saw, Mom and Dad took me to New York to see South Pacific, and it was Florence Henderson. Yeah, I believe. I believe yeah. I am I mean, actually that old. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was it. Cindy went to see Jesus Christ Superstar. Okay, and Kathy. She didn't make it to Broadway till college, but she went to see Hair. Wow, nice. You know, but I think that it's such a great memory for so many people. You know, you don't always need to go to Broadway. You can see, you know, go to your local town to see live theater. But there's just something so special the first time you see that, that I hope it, you know, I, I mean, I have a lifelong love of theater, you know, and and I know it was sparked by going to theater when I was a young girl. So, um, so I, we, so we feel that my husband and I are really just so proud of ourselves that we <laughs> did this, that it was all successful. You know, we planned, we got it organized, and the dates worked out, and it was just a fantastic experience. Oh, that's, that's so great. great. That's, we were talking about live theater, Natalie and I, backstage because there were kids in our dance group who were doing uh, a number from Annie. You know, Hard yeah. Knock Life. It's yes. A, it's a classic. And both Natalie and I had seen the original production of and Annie. And you so wanted to be Annie. Oh, my gosh. Oh I, know, my gosh. I know. I know. I know. Every, every day I used to sing that, that <laughs> freaking soundtrack. Song. I'd put it on. <laughs> but, but, but you couldn't really sing. That's I could not sing. You would yeah. never get the lead, Leanne. But nope. you had, you know, you had the acting chops and certainly the dancing skills to do it. I so. was always lead dancer number one, which is a <laughs> fantastic part. Uh, <laughs> I just encourage, yeah, go to more theater, more symphony, more opera, more ballet. It's, it's support the arts. And, you know, and it's true, Julie, we've had a theater series here in Los Angeles for 20 years. And when you buy a series, it's not that expensive. 
You know, I mean, I think people think, I mean, Broadway is expensive, yeah. but Broadway is expensive. But There's there no are a lot yeah. of theaters out there across the country that are not charging $300 for a ticket. Mm-hmm. You know, if you buy a series, it can be 20 to $25 a ticket. And here in Los Angeles, a movie is 18 You can go see live theater for 10 more bucks uh, and see some incredible performances. And even if you hate it, it always makes you think. You know, you have a reaction to it in a way that's different than just sitting passively in a movie. So, yes, go see more live theater. All right. Coming up, we are going to talk to Caroline Frazier. She is the author of Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder. It was our Satellite Sisters book club pick for February. It is the story, a deeply researched story of the true life of Laura Ingalls Wilder. Now, if you didn't read the book, just a couple of highlights. She had a terrible life. <laughs> yes. I mean, whoo! I mean, she Nothing had a hard like knock. Talk show. about a hard knock life. <laughs> yes, I mean, she had a hard knock life. She was the original hard knock life, I should just say. <laughs> uh, but she lived to be ninety years old, and you know, she so she lived during an extraordinary period of history from the migration to the Great Plains all the way through the Depression, through World War II, World War I, World War II. And she died in the 50s, you know, where she could get on an airplane and travel places. Who knew that she yeah. lived to be 90 years old and what an extraordinary span of history that was. And so uh, Caroline Frazier's book has been nominated for quite a few awards, uh, including a top 10 book for The New York Times this year, a top 10 biography because it is very thorough. It sets the context for Laura Ingalls' life. It is deeply researched. She digs up, you know, family letters. And one of the aspects of the research of the book I liked a lot, she's a lot of transactions. So obviously bank mortgages, they were Mm -hmm. constantly going broke, taking out mortgages, failing the mortgages, taking out more mortgages. So a lot of transaction history. But then a a resource was um, local papers, and what was interesting was that the local papers out there, out there on the prairie, they reported a lot of illnesses. I think I would have enjoyed those papers <laughs> instead of like a police blotter. You mean like who had diphtheria? Who had diphtheria or like, you know, when her older sister Mary went blind, Liz, that was all reported in the local paper like day by day what happened to Mary and when she went blind. So a huge amount of resources and time that she spent on this book. And we're really looking forward to talking with her about the life of Laura Ingalls Wilder. So stay tuned. We're the Satellite Sisters. First, we're going to hear from a couple of sponsors. Thanks, honey. We're the Satellite Sisters. We're back, and we're very excited to welcome the author of our February Satellite Sisters book club pick, Prairie Fires. Welcome, Caroline Frazier, to Satellite Sisters. Thank you. Great to be here. You know, Caroline, we picked this book because all I needed to hear was the words Laura Ingalls Wilder, and I was in as a huge fan of the books growing up, and I I really fancied myself quite a quite knowledgeable about Laura Ingalls Wilder. And you know what, Caroline? I didn't know jack about Laura Ingalls Wilder. (laughs) Am I the only one that, like, for her, she stopped, like, after Happy Golden Years? That was it. They just, they went off with Baby Rose, she and Almanzo and the wagon, and things were great. Was I the only one that didn't know, like, she had such a terrible, awful, hard life? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole range of, you know, fandom out there. I mean, there is this uh, conference every couple of years, Laura Palooza, where people get together and talk about all things Laura. So, yeah, there are lots of people for whom her life kind of stops the day she gets married. And then there's other people who've you know, tried to track her whereabouts down to the milliseconds. So there, there's a whole uh, range of fandom out there. But I really, you know, my whole idea behind this book was to try to kind of get to the real Laura, get past the fictional character a little bit and show people what the real person was like because she was really complicated and intense and had a lot of adventures after you know, her childhood. Well, she lived for freaking ever. I, yeah. I mean, I, I, it just really shocked me that the same person who was like riding around in that wagon, like lived through the depression and then got on an airplane at some point. I, I feel like yeah. I was an idiot. I, I just, no idea. Just believing what you see on TV, Liam. <laughs> That's true. Where were you on the spectrum? Like how much, I know you've been writing about Laura Ingalls Wilder for decades, actually. So where were you before you started writing with her? Did were you a lover of the books? 
I was, you know, I read them when I was eight or nine and just uh, loved them to death, read them over and over and over again, like a lot of fans, you know, and my grandparents were all farmers in the Midwest. Uh, They grew up there and did a lot of those same things and and had those same hardships. So I, I think that like a lot of people, I kind of sensed that this was in some way, you know, all connected to my immigrant past, which made them, I think, even more uh, interesting to me. Oh, okay. See, I grew up in Connecticut, and I just thought, well, this is fantastic fiction. And I didn't even know that she never really got that far west, frankly. (laughs) It seemed pretty far west from Connecticut. (laughs) So, okay. There's so much to talk about. The books are so deeply researched. uh, You learn not only a lot about Laura Ingalls Wilder, but a lot about America over the 100 years of her life. Right, Julie? I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, this rightly, and I think this book does such an excellent job of setting the context in which, you know, that whole westward ho movement was done. I mean, you, we just, you had no idea. I, I, I didn't, again, because uh, like my sister, we grew up in Connecticut. Yeah. You know, just of, you know, how hard it was to be, you know, a homesteader or the hardships they faced. And, you know, your book just illustrated that over and over again. So I wanted, uh, Carol- line to go through the top three like myths that were busted for me while I was reading your book and you can respond to each one okay the first one was this I thought Laura Ingalls Wilder had a cozy charming childhood and instead it was a peripatetic chaotic mess (laughs) (laughs) does that summarize it (laughs) Pretty, pretty much yeah I mean you know I think when you're a kid and you read the books you come away from the happy endings that all of the books have with the sense that, that everything was okay. And, and then when you go back and read them as an adult, you start seeing a lot of that kind of darker um, uh, past, you know, the, the, the stuff that she doesn't want to talk about too much, um, the, the poverty, the, the kind of danger that they were in, you know, a lot of times. Um, and, you know, you do get a sense of that in, in books like The Long Winter, you know, when they're just basically, you know, eating the last potatoes. Yeah, that, <laughs> I, know, I, know, I know, in that book. But oh. they're all together, and they're, it's all it's cozy. cozy. They're little, so cozy. In that little cabin, you know, and they had, still had fire. It seemed, it seemed okay to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and they're always singing songs. And, um, and yeah, she really did cover up or, or leave out a lot of things, a lot of the kind of aimless quality, you know, of their travels, you know, they're just kind of going from place to place and not really knowing where their next uh, meal is coming from sometimes. And uh, there there just is not that sense of a kind of, um, you know, overarching uh, motivation to a lot of their, their uh, travels. It's Do you just, think that was you know, true of many settlers that they didn't really have a very good plan about where they were going to go or how they were going to do it? Oh, absolutely. And and the the farming, you know, the the crisis that most of these farmers faced was that, you know, they were totally undercapitalized. They didn't have enough money to do what they were doing. You know, these homesteaders would go out in places where, you know, nobody really had any business trying to farm on that scale. Uh, And they didn't know a thing about it. You know, they just thought, oh, well, we'll get some free land and we'll be able to support ourselves. And it didn't work out that way. Um, Because rain, it turns out, does not follow the plow. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, that was the second big thing I learned. I mean, the books are... The books paint the prairie as this beautiful, benevolent character. Mm. And your book... It's just a constant source of drought, locusts, death, <laughs> fire. The prairie is terrible. It is terrible, Caroline. Why? Did, yeah, why? It, 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 it really is. And, and you know, you, you see this when you read a lot of the other famous books about the Great Plains, you know, Hamlin Garland and um, Oli Rollbag and, you know, all these sort of uh, books that kind of told the truth about what was out there. Um, well, a cather, you know, you, you really get a sense of, yes, it was beautiful, but it was also incredibly deadly. And, um, you know, that that is a sort of really 
uh, conundrum at the, at the heart of the Little House books is that she's in love with this place and, and describes it so beautifully and lyrically, and yet it, it essentially ruined her life. <laughs> I know. I mean, so many times they were so close, either the the Ingalls family, you know, when she was younger or she and Almanza, they were so close to like finally breaking even. And then all oh, those locusts show up or <laughs> like the house burns down or just it was unbelievable. Yeah. She yeah. just never got a break out there on that prairie. Right. And I think that that's why we have the books, because, you know, when she and Almanzo essentially washed out and, and were driven out uh, of the Great Plains by his illness and debt and drought, um, you know, they had to leave her family more or less forever. That was and, the saddest scene in your book. Yeah. I know. yeah. That really it's, broke it's my heart. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Here's, and, and you go know ahead. she was so nostalgic that she just you know I think inevitably had to write about it. Okay. Here's the third thing uh, I learned that was a mythbuster. Okay. In my mind, Laura Ingalls Wilder was like a fantastic student. Like she could do all those math problems in her head. Remember, they always had those math bees and those spelling bees, <laughs> and that she was this highly qualified teacher. And it turns out she was sort of a half-assed, half-educated <laughs> teacher who hated her job. What was that about? Caroline? Well, I think that was, you know, the case for all these, you know, these girls were kind of thrown into this. I mean, how, how well, how good of a teacher would you have been at the age of 16? <laughs> yeah, no, terrible. I, mean, I would have been terrible. Have been terrible. So, you know, I think they were just thrown into this and it was a way to earn money for women before they got married and they just had to kind of make it up as they went along. And you can totally see that in, you know, a little town on the prairie when Eliza Jane Wilder is kind of swanning around pretending to be a teacher. You know, um, that was one of the delights of reading your book, because every once in a while you would, you know, th- you would tell a story that I know from the fiction, but you would tell it in real life. And I was like, oh, Eliza, lazy, lousy Eliza Jane, there she is. Or <laughs> I loved when, like, when she was at that terrible teaching job with that horrible family that were mean to her and fighting. Right. And then, like, Almanzo really did show up on Friday afternoon and take her back home in the sleigh. I was like, there's Almanzo from the book. I love that. Oh, time and time again. I mean, I felt bad for Jack the Bulldog when he died. But I didn't yeah. know he was a stand-in, fictional stand-in, for her actual <laughs> little brother that died, which is even sadder. Oh. That was sad to me. Yes. I mean, there, you know, it is fascinating to see the way that, that the books kind of veered, you know, off of her life and, and used these various fictional techniques to kind of bring out a lot of the tragedy that was actually there, but that she didn't want to write about. Um, you know, she was so, I, I think it was so important to her to leave this portrait of her parents, especially her father, that cast them in the best light. That, you know, she she was just eager to avoid anything that kind of um, hinted at their, uh, you know, inability to, to really support the family. And, and that's, in, in a sense, what the teaching was all about, because, of course, she didn't want to do that. Well, that was but clear. She, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you write in the book, too, that she really started working for the family when she was eight years old. I mean, she was in service yeah. her entire life. She would be farmed out to babysit for people or care for elderly relatives or this and that to earn 25 cents a week from the time she was eight years old on, which you don't actually get a lot of child labor in the book either. That's in the fiction, you know? So that Yeah, was... yeah. That whole period, you know, when she starts doing that and is essentially like a servant of the master's family who have the hotel and all of that, you know, she she avoided that uh, like the plague in the books because, you know, that would have made her parents look so bad to a contemporary audience, and I think she knew that quite well. You know, let's talk about her dad because the rest, I mean, the book is, also the, the fiction and your book are really about the, the most fascinating parts are about the relationship she had with her father, with Almanzo, and then her daughter Rose that we're going to get to because that's nuts. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, Rose was a surprise to she me. Was. Complete surprise. Who knew? Woo. Again, I thought Rose was a baby and stayed that way. Yeah. She actually grew up. <laughs> but... Um, you know, the, her father is just so lovingly portrayed in the books. And even when he but in your book, you can see 
He could barely hold a real job. He was a failed farmer. He did 8 million different jobs, you know, to try to make ends meet. He moved the family around. He was the founder of DeSmet. Is that how you pronounce the name of that town? Yeah. Okay. And then when he died, they wrote him this glowing obituary about, you know, how he was the town founder and he held the town together and he was a great man. And yet he left his wife and blind daughter with like two bucks when he died. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just, again, kind of heartbreaking because on the one hand, you can see from what she wrote about him, even outside of of the fiction, you can see that he was like a great dad, you know, he was like a, a, a mensch. I mean, he was a really um, sweet person and obviously had all this talent, musical talent, uh, and really helped, you know, lift their spirits and keep them together. And yet, you know, a failure in many other ways. Um, so... On sort of the edge of on sort of the edge of lawlessness, you know, he fig, you know, and his, yeah. you know, he did some things that weren't actually a hundred percent legal. They were scam like, yeah. Don't you? Think? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 um, an amazing thing that she was able to to create this uh, portrait of him that you know will last for all time. Essentially, I mean, it's one of the great. Uh, he's one of the great fathers in children's literature, and there aren't a lot of really good dads. You know, I mean, there's a lot of bad dads in children's literature. So, yeah, good point. Um, or dead and, dads. And, and, yeah, yeah, they yeah, all die. Disney, yeah. they just cut Absent, them off, right? Dead, abusive, whatever. You know, so he's kind of the stellar uh, outlier in that whole genre, um, and and it's amazing that she was able to craft this this loving portrait of him, given the reality. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about um, sort of the breakthrough area of your book. It's been nominated for some great awards. It's a top 10 New York Times book of 2017 in the history category. And mainly it's because you really do set the record straight on the fact that Laura Ingalls Wilder was the author of those books. I didn't even realize there was a controversy around who authored the books, but I guess there was. Can you explain, like, what the controversy was, who people thought actually wrote the books, and then we'll talk about sort of the breakthrough work you did. Yeah, in the 90s, um, a fellow named William Holtz came out with this biography of Rose Wilder Lane, uh, Laura's daughter, um, in which he claimed that she was the ghostwriter of the books. And this was actually some of the first uh, work that I did writing about Wilder and, and Lane was uh, reviewing that book for the New York Review of Books and talking about, um, you know, the actual manuscripts that survive. Because I think you can't get around the fact that, you know, Laura wrote the books. She wrote the manuscripts. We have them. Um, they're in her handwriting. You know, she wrote these, famously went out to the dime store, got a bunch of, you know, five, ten-cent tablets, and wrote these books in pencil. Now, Rose, I don't think we'd have the books without Rose. She brought all this professional expertise and connections to the project. She, she almost sort of bullied her mother into writing them and, you know, had a big hand in editing and revising them. So she deserves a lot of credit. But I don't really think you can say she was the ghostwriter. But, you know, 20 years ago when this this biography came out, uh, it caused a big, you know, to-do, and everybody was saying, oh, little fraud on the prairie. Oh. You know, <laughs> little liar As if her life was not hard enough. <laughs> yeah. Little liar on the prairie. That is just fake yeah. news. We don't want to hear that. <laughs> It was harsh, and uh, so I just felt that was, um, you know, it was really oversimplified and and unfair, and that the actual story of how they created these books with, you know, Laura writing the original draft and and Rose uh, coming in and, uh, you know, revising and editing and and kind of helping her her mother shape and shape them and, and learn how to write fiction, essentially, is is really dramatic and, and uh, almost unprecedented. I mean, I can't think of any other mother-daughter literary team out there. I mean, there's like, you know, the Brontes and, and folks like that who, you know, had a family connection, but there really is no other mother-daughter uh, writer-editor team. 
Well, and particularly this mother and daughter. So why don't if people haven't read it, why don't you can you try to describe Rose? Because, (laughs) you know, you wouldn't think that Laura Ingalls Wilder would have a daughter that would grow up to be like this complex is the word I'll use. But how how do you just complicated? But she's tough, huh? Tough. Yeah. yeah, I mean, everybody keeps saying, oh, what a piece of work <laughs> <laughs> that Rose is. And she is. I mean, she was so uh, tumultuous. I mean, she was, you know, kind of ferociously talented and um, became a uh, noted uh, journalist and, and magazine writer pretty early on, uh, although the kind of journalism that she was practicing is uh, pretty interesting because it was essentially... Um, fake news. <laughs> right. It was yellow journalism and uh and and she kind of taught her mother all that stuff, you know, from the very uh early period. Um so you can see uh how she's influencing her mother as early as like 1915 when Laura goes out to San Francisco to visit her. But yeah, Rose's character is just um you know, she suffered from severe depression. A lot of people have uh, wondered if she was manic depressive yeah. because uh, she could work like anything. I mean, she uh, wrote, you know, just her letters alone are enough to, you know, sink you. <laughs> <They're> just, <laughs> the volume of them is just incredible. And, and she just churned stuff out. She was a very, you know, commercially talented uh, writer. Um, and she brought a lot of that to, to the Little House books. But very volatile, you know, she had nervous breakdowns. Uh, I think a lot of that you can trace back to, you know, her earliest childhood when, you know, she sees her parents uh, fall desperately ill with diphtheria and her father is left with this disability and and she seemed to remember her grandparents, you know, Charles and Caroline Ingalls, talking about, you know, what would happen if if they didn't survive. And and Mm. then she sees this terrible fire, you know, house burns down. Um, and her mother, you know, injured in that. So I think that that instability and insecurity kind of messed with her a lot. And, and she just... Sort of post-traumatic stress syndrome almost. Yeah, and yeah. just for the rest of her life, she's obsessed with building houses and renovating houses. It is. It's uh, crazy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's a wild story. And, and just, you know, the the fact that she just keeps coming back home to be with her parents, even though she hates living with them. (laughs) Well, that happens to the best of us, you know. (laughs) Do you think Laura was a good mom? Did you, did you, I mean, there's some stuff Laura does in the beginning, like, oh, yeah, let's take the baby out. It's 15 (laughs) below. And (laughs) like, I mean, there's, I mean, I know parenting was different back then, but there (laughs) seems like there was some benign neglect going on there a little bit. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I wish we had more in Laura's voice talking about Rose. We just don't. But it does seem like because she became a mom so young, um, unlike her own mother, who was older, you know, when she had her kids, uh, that I do wonder if, if that, you know, youth and inexperience kind of played a role in uh in how she she was a mother, and and you you certainly see from things that Rose said later that you know there was maybe a lot of guilt involved, you know that that Laura was seems to have you know put a lot of pressure on her to uh, come home and be with them because she was their only child. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's really hard to know though, unfortunately, because we just you know Laura didn't leave any diaries or, or letters or very, very few, uh, makes very few remarks about Rose in whatever she left. So. Well, I'm concerned, Caroline, because you wrote in the book that like when Laura died, Rose started burning her mother's papers. That oh, seems like a yeah. bad idea. If you're, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what was that about? Okay. Well, that's, that's, that's I hope, the sequel you're going to write is Rose. And then Kate... <laughs> that can be fiction. And Go then ahead. Kate Winslet can play her in the movie. I'd like that very much. Kate was Rose. Um, you know, I we're sort of winding down here, but there are a couple of things I wanted to mention. There's such a charming story in the book about Garth Williams, uh, who, of course, did the iconic drawings in the complete set that came out 
did was Laura it was that right before her death they came out or right after I can't remember the timeline um that set came out in 1953 and she died in 57 okay so. Yeah, yeah, and that, I just it, thought that he came and he met her and then he went on her journey so he could really capture the spirit. I just love that because when I think of the Little House books, those are, of course, what I think of. Like more before Melissa Gilbert, I think of those Garth Williams drawings. So mm-hmm. I love that. Is he still alive or is he not alive? No, he he. I forget when he died, but um, somebody actually published a biography of him recently, which is really interesting. Because uh, he had quite an amazing career, you know, Stuart Little and Charlotte's Web, and oh yeah, he House would have to be like really? 180 oh, yeah. now. Why? <laughs> of course, he's not with us. <laughs> I am lost in the Laura Ingalls Wilder time space continuum. <laughs> So, I'm lost in it. Okay. And then we had, uh, Julie, I know you want to ask a question about reading the books now, but I wanted to ask one question from the Facebook page. One of uh, uh, the Satellite Sisterhood wanted to know, what do you think Laura would have made of the television show? I thought that was a fun question. Do you think she would have enjoyed TV Little House on the Prairie? Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I think I can answer that pretty categorically because... Um, she never owned a TV, but she did see some early adaptation of The Long Winter that a, that a TV station, I think, in St. Louis put on, which she hated. But I have to say that, that you know, having seen, uh, you know, what Michael Landon made of her father, I mean, I think she would have been horrified by that just because she had, you know, poured all of her, uh, you know, working life and resources into creating this portrait of him as as a really, you know, amazing provider and and also just a, a humble man, you know, not somebody who was uh vain or or um you know, interested in his uh uh appearance or you know, and just the the crazy stuff they did on the TV show um of of you know, making all these bringing all these sort of 1970s uh type subjects and and so forth into the the storyline, I, I just think she would have been utterly baffled. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned uh, in the book that I had forgotten that there was some shirtless, like, wood chopping that Michael <laughs> Landon engaged in. And so now I was like, oh, that's why my mom used to like to watch that show with me. I was in it for the half pint, but she was in it for shirtless Michael Landon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know people love the show, and that's fine. Yeah. I just yeah. think it's a totally different thing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> And it doesn't really have much to do with her life. Well, Caroline, do you recommend the books to young readers now? I mean, because they don't have the benefit of reading your great book and having the context. And I know in many cases, the books have been criticized because they're, you know, they really don't represent, you know, what happened accurately what happened with Native Americans. But how do you handle that? You know, I think if if you're a teacher of, you know, elementary school children, I don't know if you can teach that with the historical context, but I imagine that there probably are ways to do that. And and I think you have to do that. I don't think you can just, you know, kind of read a chapter before lunch the way teachers used to in the in the 50s and 60s. I think you have to present them uh in some kind of historical context. Uh, so that kids understand what they're looking at, because uh, otherwise you can come away with some, uh, you know, pretty stereotypical views of Indians. But I actually think the books are a great way to open up that history uh, for for kids and um, even older kids. And and so I would hope that that people don't um, necessarily throw the baby out with the bathwater, but but just kind of figure out a way to teach this with the history. What are you working on next? What's your next project? Oh, man, I I have some ideas, but I'm just uh, still trying to kind of figure out uh, what I'm going to do because um, one of the great things about writing Prairie Fires was that I had uh, a lot of research already done because I'd, I'd done this uh, version of the Little House books for the Library of America. So I, I came into it with um, a lot of stuff already uh, kind of in the can, as it were. <laughs> so now I'm just kind of starting over. And um, so I'm not sure. 
Well, thank you so much for being on Satellite Sisters. The book is Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder. It was our Satellite Sisters book club pick for February. Caroline, we really appreciate it. We love the book. Thanks so much for opening our eyes to how terrible the prairie was. We really <laughs> I'm never going. Glad to do it. (laughs) We didn't even get to talk about the locusts. I know. Yeah, I'm with you, Leah. (laughs) Thanks, Caroline. Thanks, Caroline. (laughs) Thank you. Wow, Laura Palooza. Who knew? I didn't even know about that. That was great. It's so interesting to talk to her when you think about the fiction, her biography, like what that represents in our culture. It's amazing. Just just fascinating. And she really did do the groundbreaking research on on, you know, making on that claim about Laura's books being ghostwritten. So yeah. I think that's why she's getting all the accolades for this book. You know, that was a big deal. So, okay. Good for her. Thank you, Caroline. I totally love that. The um all right, I know we got to wrap it up, but it is the Oscars this weekend. I don't know if you guys are like, do you have your picks? Have you? I'm actually. Invi- I've invited some people over to watch the Oscars. Oh, wow. I know. I've never done that before. No. I just. I don't know. I got once the Olympic ended. I thought I needed like a reason to live. I needed yeah. like what? What's the next <laughs> thing I can put on my entertainment calendar? Setting short term goals, Liz. Yes, I like that. <laughs> exactly. But there's one highly nominated movie that I have not seen yet. So I just wanted to know if you guys had seen it. Would you recommend? I don't know why I haven't seen The Shape of Water. But it's just the one I haven't been able to make myself go see. So and- I, have, I have a very strong positive recommendation from a very strong positive source, a woman in my book club who I trust on movies. She said, it's great. It okay. is like a fairy tale. And don't miss it. You know, and I love Guillermo del Toro. I like all of his other movies. I don't know why I just haven't gotten excited about it. There's just something about a creature being at yeah. the center of the story that hasn't really motivated me. But I'm looking at the list now, and I have seen every single other thing on the list. Wow. So, okay. So I have between now and my little uh, Oscar soiree to go see The Shape of Water. So then I'll be ready to to fill out my ballots. Have you made a dent in your lists? No. You know, I want to see Dunkirk. That, Which uh, is a fantastic movie. I, and I know. I missed it in the right. theaters, and I assumed it would come back, and it hasn't really in Los Angeles except on the west side. I don't want to drive there. So I'm just going to rent it uh, this week because I'd yeah. like to see that. And and my, Colin, who is also a very astute movie critic, my son, I mean, seriously, yeah. he loved The Shape of Water. He did. He said the be- it has beautiful use of color. Oh, so okay. there you go. Sort of like I, the closing ceremony. I was trying to catch up on Oscar movies on the flight back from New York, and I started to watch Three Billboards. Yeah. The woman sitting behind me uh, uh, stood up, tapped me on the shoulders, and said, don't watch that. That is so intense. You're really not going to like it. That's <laughs> <laughs> that is so That's funny. funny. She said, it's too intense. Don't watch this on the plane. It is a big mistake you're making. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I can see yeah. that. Well, okay. yeah, I'm just, frankly, I'm just hoping for a ladybird sweep. I, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, All right. I, there were many, many great movies this year and there great were. performances and everything. But I say Greta Gerwig, Lady Bird, Saoirse Ronan, all the way. I'm going with that. <laughs> okay. I think in the spirit of the Satellite Sisterhood, you just got to get on the Ladybird bandwagon. <laughs> I liked Phantom Thread a lot. So I hope that you serve toast at your Oscar party. <laughs> Very loud, do that. loud buttered toast. toast. <laughs> That's what I think. That movie was so weird, though. I loved every Still second. Still thinking of it. about it. I loved every second. I guess of it. that's good. Yep. I wish it okay. went on forever. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm sure I'm not the only one that does that. Um, all right. So that's it. We're just, uh, we'd like to thank Sergio Enriquez at the Wondery Sunset Studio for engineering the show and for being here on Tuesday mornings. And anything else? Anybody else got anything we going just, on? Uh, good luck, Jennifer. We good luck, Jennifer. Oh, yeah. Right. Jennifer's baby girl could be born right now. What if she names the baby Julie? <laughs> that would be lovely, don't you think? <laughs> I think Olympia is a good name. All right. <laughs> We're the Satellite Sisters. Don't forget, call your Satellite Sisters.